11 is the second part of the vision that was introduced last week in chapter 10. It's closely tied together and it completes the pause before the seventh trumpet blast. And this chapter is notoriously difficult in its interpretation. So thank you, Dan, for setting me up with this one. Uh, just kidding, but it is notoriously difficult and there's a variety of interpretations of this text, okay? And to be honest, I don't have perfect answers to all the questions. I myself still have questions after studying this all week. Um, but, but the fact is that we, we need to approach the Word of God humbly, recognizing that none of us are going to have a perfect answer to everything in Scripture, right? But the fact is that as I've studied it, and as I've asked the Lord to help me understand it, the layering of these biblical themes and figures has opened my eyes even more to the beauty and the complexity of Scripture, and it's encouraged me as I've studied it. And so what I hope you'll see as we work our way through the chapter is that the stark complexity actually untangles into another powerful picture of the recurring theme of Revelation that we've talked about again and again. And that theme is this. The church is under trial. God's people will temporarily suffer increasing persecution as they faithfully bear witness to Christ until the climactic end when they will be vindicated and the wicked will be judged. That's the theme of Revelation and it's the theme of our chapter today. So let's read it together. Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They'll make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them, and at that hour there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed, and behold, the third is soon to come. 
And the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and for the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Take a deep breath after that. That was intense. Let's, let's pray again uh, that the Lord would give us understanding of this text. Lord, I do just come before you again to ask for your help. Lord, would you make these images clear to us? Lord, would you bring meaning? Would you uh, speak to our hearts and call to mind the testimony of Scripture about our risen Lord and the judgment that is to come. Lord, would you speak through me and grant us understanding? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the passage begins and ends with the temple. After John has eaten that bittersweet scroll, his attention is directed towards the temple. If any of you have ever read any part of the Bible, I hope you would know that the temple is important, right? Do you guys know that? The temple's important. Pop quiz again, who remembers the person responsible for building the temple? Solomon. Who knows how many temples there are in the Bible? Technically, you're right, Larry, there's three. Uh, but there's, there's two actual temples in the Bible, there was Solomon's temple, the first, that was destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C., and then it was built again, the second temple, then it was um, damaged and, and renovated under Herod, and then it was finally destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. Those are the two physical temples in the Bible, and the temple was God's appointed place for his glory presence to rest among his people. It was the center of corporate worship before God. And so the question arises as we jump in the text, what temple is John looking at? If Solomon's temple was destroyed and the second temple was most likely already destroyed by the time John is seeing this vision, then what is he looking at? And so I want to take you back to the Old Testament and, and to Larry's point. Uh, we're going to go back to Ezekiel. And I want to propose that this temple that John is seeing in his vision is actually a third temple. It's a new temple in the new Jerusalem. So the very first line of verse 1 here calls to mind Ezekiel again. Remember last week in chapter 10, John was told to eat the scroll, which was a reference also to the prophet Ezekiel, who was told to take and eat the scroll in Ezekiel chapter 3. But here again, we see another parallel to the prophet Ezekiel. John is given a measuring rod, and he's told to measure the temple. 
The final section of Ezekiel's book, chapters 40 through 48, contain a detailed vision of a temple that is to be built, a third temple. And in the beginning of that vision, in Ezekiel 40, the prophet Ezekiel sees a man who's holding a measuring rod, who's measuring the temple. And interestingly enough, that man is clothed exactly how the resurrected Jesus is clothed in Revelation chapter 1. This vision of Ezekiel is fascinating. And I want to ask you guys, who remembers the significance of Ezekiel 40 through 48 for our church specifically? Does anybody remember? Shout it out. What's the significance of Ezekiel 40 through 48? Yes, yes, that is the temple where the trickle of water flows through the eastern gate of mercy and becomes a river of life. So this is an important text for our church. And so what I want to propose to you is that this temple on top of the mountain that Ezekiel is seeing is the temple on Mount Zion in the New Jerusalem. And, and, and it's that temple where Ezekiel sees a prince ruling over his people, and his people will not sin anymore. And as he rules over those people, this trickle of water is causing trees of life to grow. This propels us right back into Revelation 22, the last image in the Bible. And if you remember, Jesus stood up in the temple in John chapter 7, in the middle of the festival that celebrated and looked forward to that day, and he declared, I am the one who will give you this living water. The temple in view here in Revelation chapter 11 is Ezekiel's heavenly temple on Mount Zion. And it's the temple where Jesus will dwell with his people forever and where his people will worship him face to face. It is the eternal place of worship. So what's with the measuring rod, you might ask? So back in October, we visited my friend who lives in North Carolina, who, who recently bought a new house. And his house is surrounded on three sides by these beautiful, massive North Carolina pine trees. And so I'm so thankful. Uh, at the end of our vacation last week, we got to go back and visit him again. And when we pulled up to the house, it looked different, and I noticed that all the pine trees on one side of his property were completely gone. So when I asked him about it, he explained to me that the, the, the pine trees on that lot are selling for top dollar right now. And so the neighbor sold all of those pine trees to a logging company for a massive check and came in, and they took out the beautiful scenery next to my friend's house. But let me ask you, before a logging company comes in to that lot and tears down those trees, what do they need to do? They gotta measure it. They have to survey, right Tyler? They've gotta survey the boundaries of that property. They have to mark which trees must be removed and which trees must stay. Boundaries and borders are important in the Bible. And the act of measuring throughout scripture is often used to refer to marking something for destruction and judgment or sealing something for protection and preservation. And so we should note in Ezekiel's vision that the entire temple is measured. 
the inner court, the outer court, the city next to it, and all the territories around it are measured by this man with the measuring rod, and it's all included and sealed for protection under the prince. And it's actually given as an inheritance to his sons and to his servants. But pay attention in Revelation 11 to what is not measured in John's vision. Look again at verses 1 and 2. The voice says, To measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. So in other words, the temple in Ezekiel's vision is not yet complete in John's vision. Does that make sense? Yeah? The temple is not yet complete in John's vision, but it has already begun. The holy place and the altar are surrounded by worshipers. And these worshipers are measured for protection. In fact, as the end of Revelation is going to point out, the temple in heaven is actually the Lord and the Lamb himself. The temple in its truest form is the presence of God consummated with his redeemed people, and that temple is protected. God's eternal place of worship is protected. And this eternal temple has already been established, but it's not yet complete. Remember, before Jesus left, he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a what? A place for you. And I'm going to return, and I'm going to take you there. But after he ascended, he poured out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Remember that? Acts chapter 2. And he said that the promised Holy Spirit is for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, who repents and is baptized in the name of Jesus. That outpouring of his Spirit on Pentecost was identified in John 7 as the living water that brings life. The living water, the Holy Spirit, is that trickle of water flowing from the eastern gate of Ezekiel's temple. And then Paul picks up this theme in 1 Corinthians 6, and he says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Peter also picks this up, and he writes that you are living stones being built up into a spiritual house so that, so that acceptable sacrifices may be offered to the Lord. From the beginning... God has intended his community of worshipers to be the temple where his glory dwells. Your redeemed souls and your resurrected bodies in the presence of God are the eternal place of worship. And you, as a redeemed person of God, are protected. And all of a sudden we realize that this act of measuring in chapter 11 mirrors the ceiling of the 144,000 in chapter 7. Just as John's vision in Revelation 6 and 7 paused bef between the 6th and the 7th seals, here again, the vision stops between the 6th and the 7th trumpets to demonstrate powerfully that God's people will be protected though tribulation will come. So what's the point? If you are unified with Christ by his spirit, your soul is already sealed for protection as his child. 
And in fact, you are seated with Christ right now where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. His eternal place of worship is protected. And we have to cling to that spiritual protection because we're going to need it, right? As the text goes on, and as we've already pointed out time and time again through Revelation, this world is not physically safe for followers of Jesus. If you're here today as a follower of Jesus, it is so that you can be his witness. But here's the next point. Even though his eternal place of worship is protected, your earthly place of witness is dangerous. The voice from heaven continues in verse 2 and says, The outer court is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. The outer court and the city beyond it is the place of witness. In the second temple, under uh, King Herod's supervision, there was a boundary wall constructed with a warning posted on it. There was an inner court for the Jewish people only, and then there was the boundary wall, and then there was the outer court where people of any nation could come and worship. But they could not cross the boundary. But the outer court was not designed to exclude foreigners from worship. The outer court was actually designed so that people of any nation could come and worship the Lord there, so that people who were not God's people could become his people. In fact, it's that boundary wall that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down in Christ. And so it's with this pattern in mind in the temple in John's vision, who is representing, remember, God's redeemed people. And if that's the case, the outer court then represents those people who do not know God. If the sanctuary and the inner court is God's protected and sealed people, then the outer court is the people who do not yet know God. The nations or the Gentiles are the biblical terms for unbelieving people, people who don't worship God. And it's into that outer court that God has granted authority for his witnesses to prophesy. Your place of witness is in that outer court, in the earthly city that has been given over to the Gentiles to be trampled, which means your place of witness is dangerous. But what do the two witnesses have to do with you and me? Aren't they supposed to be these two anointed people in the end times that do crazy things? Take a look with me at verse 4. We're actually given an interpretive key in verse 4. It says, These two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What? He tells us what they are, but it's, wait, what? This takes us back again to the vision in Zechariah chapter 4. Hopefully you guys are getting familiar with Zechariah by now because John keeps coming back to it. The prophet in Zechariah 4 has a vision. Does anyone remember? A vision of a golden lampstand. And on top of the lampstand, there's a bowl with seven torches that are burning. And next to that lampstand are two olive trees that have pipes made of gold channeling oil into the lampstand to keep the flame burning. 
And so the angel explains to Zechariah, he actually says, don't you know what these are? And Zechariah says, no, what is it? What is it? You don't know? And the angel finally explains, these two olive trees are the Lord's two anointed ones who stand before the Lord. And their task is not to be completed by might, nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord God Almighty. And in the context of Zechariah 4, after Solomon's temple had already been destroyed under the Babylonian captivity, the two anointed ones were the high priest Joshua and the governor Zerubbabel, who were to lead in the building of the second temple. And that temple which was to be filled with God's redeemed exile people coming back home from Babylon, was the lampstand. The temple is the lampstand, holding the flame of God's presence. And the task of those two anointed ones was to build the temple for the Lord's righteous branch to dwell in. Think about it. The anointed ones, the two olive trees, pour out the oil for God's presence to continually burn among his people to complete the building of his temple. Not by power, not by might, but by the Spirit of God. But then let's jump back into the context of Revelation and the New Testament. Remember, Jesus has already been identified as the faithful witness in Revelation 1, and he's identified throughout Scripture as the anointed one, he is the great high priest. He is the governor king who fulfills the office of both of those Old Testament figures. And he is the one who poured out his Holy Spirit that God's presence might be continually with his people, burning like a flame. And those burning lampstands that carry God's presence are to go to the ends of the earth as they bear witness about Jesus. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Not by power, not by might, but how? By his spirit. And so already in John's vision, in chapter 1, verse 20, we see that Jesus clearly states, the lampstands, the golden lampstands are my church. The flame is my presence. The people of God who have the spirit of Jesus are the anointed witnesses who are granted authority to go outside the camp to bear reproach as witnesses for Jesus in the outer court until the final living stone of God's temple is put in place. You guys follow that? I know it's, like, it's a lot of mental exercise this morning, but the, 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 the people of God with his spirit are his anointed witnesses. So that means that you are a witness and you're called to take the stand in the very court that is trampled by the enemies who reject your message. You are a witness called to take the stand in the very court that is trampled by the enemies who reject your message. You're called to eat and to speak the message that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is alive, and Jesus is coming back. And the only hope for anyone when he returns is that they have repented and come to Jesus for forgiveness. And to declare that message in the outer court is a death sentence. To declare that message among enemies 
is dangerous, but you're sealed for eternal protection as his anointed witness, even though you're assigned to temporary persecution. I'm going to say that again. You're sealed for eternal protection, even though you're assigned to temporary persecution. God's eternal place of worship is protected, and your place of witness is dangerous. And so what follows in the text from verses 5 through verse 10 is a gruesome and stark image of the hellish opposition to your testimony about Jesus. This text expands on the previous point that your place of witness is dangerous, but it also brings us to the third point, that the church's prophetic witness about Jesus is effective. The demonic forces that we've talked about the last couple weeks from the abyss are waging all-out war against you. They're conspiring to work us woe, as the song says, but God's word shall overthrow them. God's anointed witnesses have received the Spirit of God with the power and authority of the King of Kings to be effective in their ministry, even though it's a ministry marked with suffering. So let me just briefly mention some important features of this effective prophetic ministry of the church. First of all, it's a ministry that has a fixed end point. It is temporary. The tribulation will end. The text mentions explicitly 1,260 days, 42 months, and three and a half days. This is the point where people get into all sorts of debates trying to line up events and dates. It's a mess. But I do want to point out, however, these are not arbitrary, obscure numbers pulled out of thin air. Remember, Jesus said, it's not for you to know times and seasons pointed, appointed by my Father, but you are to be witnesses until the end. It doesn't matter when, you're going to be witnesses to the end. But these numbers do have significance. They're symbolic ways to express, I believe, the, the same period of time. The 1260 days broken down into 30-day months is 42 months, which is three and a half years. Uh, there's a lot of commentators who would disagree and a lot of commentators that would agree, but I believe they're symbolically expressing the same period of time. And these specific lengths of time are used to show us not only that it's a temporary period of time, but also, second, that your ministry as a witness is an integral part of God's overarching plan of redemption. There's something bigger going on here than just 42 months. You are an integral part of God's redemptive plan, and that plan includes everybody who's come before us and everybody who comes after us. The specific language spoken here by the voice from heaven acts as a bridge to other important biblical events and prophecies which magnify the significance of John's vision. You see that? That same thing that's happened already in Revelation. These specific time frames link us back to other important redemptive moments. Verses 5 and 6 mention fire pouring from their mouths. 
mentions the witnesses will have the power to shut the sky so that no rain can fall. It says that they will have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with plagues. Does anybody know which Old Testament characters this is speaking about? Moses and, and Elijah, yeah. Moses turned the water into blood and he struck the earth with plagues in Egypt. And then he led the people through the wilderness to the promised land. But how many of you knew that in Numbers 33, we're given exactly 42 locations in the wilderness where the people of Israel camped, depending on the power and presence of God to bring them into the land of rest? Elijah prayed and prophesied before King Ahab that there would be a severe drought. And then he fled into, again, the wilderness. And he was protected by God in the wilderness, and God actually fed him, again, bread and meat from the sky provided by the ravens. Sounds like Moses and the people of Israel. But does anyone remember how long he was in the wilderness? Three and one-half years. In other words, 42 months. Daniel had the prophetic vision regarding the end of all things. And in that vision, there was a beast who possessed authority for a time, times, and half a time. In other words, three and a half periods of time where he would trample on the holy city. Abraham's descendants, as we're told in Matthew chapter 1, had to wait, you remember how many generations from the time God promised Abraham until it was fulfilled in Jesus was 42 generations. And then Jesus himself left the throne of heaven into the wilderness of this earth to fulfill that promise to Abraham. And the length of his public ministry, according to the timeline in the Gospels, is three and one-half years. More than a calendar for us to go by, the time period in Revelation 11 is intended to weave together these layers of important redemptive moments to identify us among the great cloud of witnesses that's gone before us, that has endured suffering, and that is now with him in heaven. We are an important, we're in an important moment of God's redemptive plan. This is not just another day to be wasted. This is where our series earlier this year from Hebrews chapter 10 to chapter 13 becomes so relevant. I challenge you guys to read those chapters this week because it's, it's very relevant to this text. It is precisely because God has designed his plan to work this way and that he has brought you into it to be a co-laborer to carry out his assignment. It's for that reason that your testimony about Jesus is effective. It's not effective by power or by might or by human wisdom. It's not effective by your craftiness. Your testimony about Jesus is effective because he has brought you into his redemptive plan and anointed you with his spirit to bear witness. You guys believe that? You guys following me? I know it's a lot of stuff. So this brings up another question. If we are the anointed witnesses... Do we have the ability to strike the earth with plagues, to turn water into blood, and to call fire down on people? To answer that, I want to take you to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Let's just turn there 
I'd love to get your eyes on the page. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Do we have the ability to call fire down on people as God's witnesses? Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near, For Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Remember that hostility between Jews and Samaritans. They did not receive him. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven? consume them? Hear this. The messengers of God, of Jesus, went before him and were rejected and then they came back and said, should we call fire down on them? How did Jesus respond? He rebuked them and then they left and went to another village. Jesus said this, as you continue to read into Luke chapter 10, They go to another village, and he actually gets more witnesses, 72 others, and he sends them out ahead. And what does he tell them? No, no, no. We're not to call fire down on them. My work is to undo the works of the devil. And so here's what my witnesses are going to do. You're going to go out like sheep among wolves, and you're going to declare that the kingdom of God is here and you're going to heal the sick, you're going to cast out demons, you're going to raise the dead, and if you are rejected, are you to call fire down? No. You are to say, nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. And then he finishes, also keep in mind, I'm I'm roping in the, the parallel passage from Matthew, but as he finishes this instruction in Luke chapter 10, he says this, it will be more tolerable for Sodom, that great evil city, on the day of judgment than for those who reject his witnesses. That is sobering. Your prophetic witness about Jesus is effective even when you're rejected, even when you're persecuted, even if you're killed for the name of Jesus. It's effective Because when you faithfully proclaim the gospel in the power and authority of the Holy Spirit, every single person who hears that proclamation is brought to a point of decision before the Lord. They will either repent and believe or they will reject and rebel. And God will hold each of those people accountable for that decision as if Jesus himself was standing before them. That is serious. And so the answer is no. We're not called to call down fire on people. We are called to follow and follow Jesus and to do the works that he did. But remember what we talked about in the past couple weeks. It's actually the prayers of the saints who are persecuted coming up as incense before the Lord that brings judgment upon the wicked. And so as you're declaring, proclaiming the gospel, doing the works that Jesus did, it is the fact that you are persecuted 
and that you are praying before the throne that actually judgment comes from heaven upon those. It's not that we're calling down the fire. It's that we are doing the works of Jesus and he is vindicating his people. Does that make sense? Yes? No? All right. We are not called to judge that response when we proclaim the gospel. We're simply anointed and empowered by the Spirit to bear witness about Jesus and to do the works that he did in the face of persecution even unto death. And that task will be completed and it will be effective. So the harsh reality as the text continues back in Revelation 11 verses 7 through 10 the reality is that the trajectory of history requires that persecution and rejection will come for the church and it will intensify and it will end in a climax when as Revelation earlier said when the number of fellow servants and brothers who have been martyred is complete. That is the reality of following Jesus in a demonically tormented, sin-cursed world that's too addicted to false messiahs to hear his message. But the people of God will successfully bring the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation to the ends of the earth. Jesus said that in Matthew 24. When the gospel has reached the ends of the earth, then the end will come. And so what we see here in the text is a gruesome, grotesque scene of martyrdom. When that task has been completed, the beast will arise, and the beast will make one last-ditch effort to exterminate God's people, and seemingly will succeed. And it's through this picture that Jesus says to you, to you and me, to the church, the world is going to crucify my church just like it crucified me. But it's not going to happen until their ministry is complete. Remember, Jesus was not crucified until the, t the appointed time had come. Likewise, his church cannot be crucified until its assignment is complete. And, and Jesus would say, just when that happens when the world thinks that it's finally rid of my prophets, there's going to be rejoicing. They're going to be celebrating the fact that the church is dead. And it's at that moment that I will bring them back to life and I will call them to myself and I will vindicate them. I will reward them for their faithful witness and I will destroy the destroyers of earth who have rejected my steadfast love and mercy. And that's it. That is the end of history. The Lord will not delay in fulfilling his plan of redemption and judgment. When the appointed time has come, there is nothing that can stop it. We cannot turn the clock back. Verse 14 says, The second woe has passed after the church's assignment is complete and the beast makes war to exterminate the church. The second woe is passed, and the third woe begins to unfold as the seventh trumpet blast is heard. Just like the seventh seal and the seventh bowl, the seventh trumpet signals the day of the Lord when all people, the living and the dead, are exposed 
to the almighty glory of God with its flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake. When God is revealed in his glory before all people. And that is when John sees the temple in heaven again with the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence completely unveiled before his people. God's holy, holy, holy presence revealed for all to see. And at that moment, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The church is under trial, but the eternal place of worship is protected. For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord before it's too late. If you're sealed and protected as God's child, you are granted authority as a witness to prophesy in that outer court among his enemies. You're called to witness that Jesus is the king and he's coming back and that prophetic witness will be anointed in power and it will be effective for repentance and for judgment to those no matter whether they rebel or repent that ministry will be effective. And it will not be effective by might. It will not be effective by power. It will only be effective by the power of God's Spirit working through us. So my question for us is, have we called upon the name of the Lord for that salvation? And if you have... Are you bearing witness? Let's bow our heads as we close our time. text that is, as I've already said, it's sobering, it's grotesque, and it's not really a happy message, but it is necessary for us to hear. We're not called to just make it through another day, to check another checkbox off the list. We are anointed and clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness about Jesus because we are in a temporary period that will end. And the Bible says that the Lord is not willing that any should perish. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he actually loves the world, and he sent his own son. He did not even spare his own son from being persecuted and killed that we might be forgiven and redeemed. 
how much more will he not give us all things? But like that great cloud of witnesses, that, that hall of faith figures, we are in the wilderness. We can't see all the answers. We don't know all the lies. And it's hard. You guys feel like this is hard? Living as a Christian in this world is hard. But you are sealed and protected here in Christ. You're seated with him at the right hand of the Father. You've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been predestined for adoption as his children. And you will receive an, an eternal inheritance in that new Jerusalem where we will worship God, consummated together in union with him forever, where we will get to enjoy his goodness forever. We'll get to enjoy his steadfast love forever. We won't have to battle sin anymore. We won't have to feel pain anymore. Have you called upon him for salvation? Because if not, judgment is coming. Those who side with the enemy are counted with the destroyers of earth. And that is not a camp that we want to be in. Have you called upon the Lord? And are you bearing witness? Lord, I pray that you would bring us encouragement from this dark passage. Bring us the encouragement, knowing that you are in control of all things, knowing that you are good. You are good in bringing justice where there is evil and wickedness. You are good because you are just and the justifier, and you have made a way for us to enter your courts. You've torn down that dividing wall of hostility. And Jesus, you've given up your body to be bruised and beaten and torn that we might enter the holy of holies. And that is a good king. That is a gracious shepherd. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with boldness to bear witness about you in the court of our enemies. Lord, that we would go just as Jesus went, like a lamb among wolves, bearing reproach, suffering with joy, knowing that we are counted worthy to suffer for your sake. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with boldness and courage and zeal. And Lord, send us out again this week. It's not the convincing argument that we can craft to win someone over to you. We're going to stumble over our words when we try to talk about Jesus. We're going to get tripped up. We're going to have questions we can't answer. But Lord, it is not by our wisdom and might that you save people. It's by the power of your spirit working through us. And so Lord, I pray that you would fill us and empower us to do that ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a mighty fortress because I just felt like this song captures this text so well. So would you guys stand with me as you close with the Roman Fortress? Um.
Grace and peace, you guys are dismissed. Amen. Amen. Amen.